Hello, you're listening to The Sower, a podcast of the Ciceronian Society. The Ciceronian Society is a community of Christian scholars and public intellectuals committed to the examination of three core themes, tradition, place, and things divine, and their role in the intellectual discipleship of the church and civilization generally. To learn more about us, our events, this podcast, and to make your tax-deductible gift, please go to ciceroniansociety.org. That's C-I-C-E-R-O-N-I-A-N-S-O-C-I-E-T-Y dot org. I'm Josh Bowman, Vice President of the Ciceronian Society, and before we get started, please join me in prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray, O Lord, that you would bless our conversation and that all we say and do would bring glory and honor to you. Amen. It is Candlemas for Western Christianity, so it is February 2nd, 2024, and I'm thrilled to be joined by my friends Trey Dimsdale and Jordan Baller. Trey is the Executive Director of the Center for Religion, Culture, and Democracy, which we'll refer to as the CRCD here, and Jordan Baller is the Director of Research at the CRCD. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thank you. Glad yeah, to thanks. Joining Excited you. to be here. The CRCD has long been a major partner of the Ciceronian Society, and this year they are designated as a Tulia sponsor. At least I think it's either Tulia or Tulia. It depends on who I'm talking to. Uh, Tulia being the name of Cicero's beloved daughter. You can visit our website to learn more about these sponsorship levels. We're going to start, though, by learning a little more about what the CRCD is and what they do. And then I want to turn to a recent article that Trey and Jordan uh, wrote at lawandliberty.org uh, regarding the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and I believe it was the 75th anniversary just this past December, December 2023. So let's start with this. I'll hand it over to Trey. Trey, um, tell us a little more about what the CRCD is and uh, what you guys do, what you've been up to. Um, and just because I, I, I'm sure people have heard of you at this point, especially from our, our audience, but there's plenty of people who haven't. So tell us a little more about what you do. So we are embedded inside of a larger nonprofit, the First Liberty Institute, which is the largest public interest law firm in the U.S. that's exclusively focused on religious freedom litigation. And uh, several years ago, when First Liberty's mission expanded beyond just Texas-centric litigation, they uh, decided to launch a think tank. And so um, the, uh, to, to expand their advocacy, not just in, in the courtroom, but then also in the wider culture as well. So the CRCD um, brand launched in October of 2020. Um, we do programs for students. We do programs for academics. We do programs for um, pastors and religious leaders. Um, the name is reflective of you know, sort of a metaphysical priority that is, uh, embodies all of the work that we do. We believe that religion provides the moral vocabulary for um, a unique type of culture to, to emerge. And then from the right types of culture, you have democratic institutions um, that emerge to be able to um, kind of uh, cultivate and, and uh, stabilize um, that type of culture. And so uh, through our work, our educational programming for um, college students, um, our uh, support of research projects um, with, uh, with academics and our publications, um, we are um, trying to you know, make the case that uh, religion is something that's good for everybody, whether you practice or not. 
and uh, we, uh, we, we take the position that by defending religion in the public square, religious institutions, religious ideas, and religious persons, you actually are um, directly um, uh, defending um, de democracy as well. And uh, so if religious freedom is the political conduit that allows religious institutions and persons to exist freely in the public square and to engage in religious practice, then um, we, uh, uh, we're, we're, we're complementing um, the, the pre-existing um, mission of First Liberty, which has been focused on, um, on uh, legal advocacy as well. So we've, we've actually expanded the portfolio of what it is that First Liberty Institute does to, um, to further the cause of religious freedom in the U.S., now, one of the biggest things you do in this process, then, or in this, uh, in, in one of the biggest activities you do is your fellowship programs, uh, which is one of the first things I heard about when you all got started. Um, just in, in a very quick version, can you tell us a little bit about that? I know you have the Shaftesbury Fellowship and a couple other ones. Just uh, what's the, the quick elevator pitch for those? Yeah, so the, the Shaftesbury Fellowship is our, our um, you know, our, our premier event. Uh, it's a 10-week paid uh, fellowship for upper-level undergraduate students and recent graduates who are interested in pursuing careers in academia. We want this to be like a platform where they, they can um, jump off into an in, in, into, gra into graduate programs, elite graduate programs, um, and see this as a starting point of their academic careers. And so uh, they have reading seminars every week uh, we, with uh, different um, different guest scholars that we bring in. And they also work with an established scholar in their field to produce a publishable quality um, um, paper or, or, or research. Uh, um, hopefully they're able to use that as a writing sample for, uh, for a graduate, uh, graduate school application. Um, the other, other two that we do are much smaller, or shorter, I guess I should say, uh, where we have uh, something for students in, that are interested in, in careers in public service. They may be interested in running for office or they may be interested in working for a think tank. Um, and we, we spend uh, five days with them in Washington, D.C. And um, we uh, are, are trying to help them wrestle with the unique, um, the unique calling of a Christian uh, and the unique ethical questions that a Christian has to wrestle with. Uh, if they're going to build a career in that field. And so we bring in um, people who have um, been able to um, have successful careers in that area. It's, we don't bring in people who have, you know, necessarily have uh, 50,000 followers on Twitter, but um, people who've sort of been in the trenches uh, and, been, and been faced with those type, the types of dilemmas that these students are signing up for. And then we have uh, an event every spring uh, that's less skills focused and more theoretical, the Savannah Seminar on Religion, Culture, and Democracy. Uh, we go to Savannah because it's a, uh, one of the oldest cities in the U.S. and it has not um, bulldozed under its history like some others have. And you can see the effect of um, you know, multiple generations of single families um, contributing and investing in, into one community. And we explore um, the, this, this, this theme, this triad of religion, culture, democracy, the way that those things fit together. And we're able to, to use the city as a laboratory uh, to be able to see, you know, from the very first, you know, within the very first months of Savannah's founding, 
Uh, it became an early experiment in pluralism. It was the first place in North America where Jews were allowed to own property. They were allowed to own property before Catholics were. And um, over, the, over the course of you know, the first <coughs> 10 or 15 years of the establishment of the colony of Georgia, um, it ended up being quite a religiously diverse place where people were forced to cooperate, find ways to cooperate, to build a unique type of um, cultural cooperation so that they're able to survive. It should be immediately apparent then to those um, listening how why there's such a natural overlap and partnership between the CRCD and the Ciceronian Society. Not only do you have um, this emphasis on religion, so things divine and, and tradition, but also the sense of place. I think the Savannah Seminar uh, being one of the best examples I've ever heard of in terms of that place. Also, um, one of the exciting things is the last several years, several of these fellows have ended up at the Ciceronian Society Conference to present their work. Um, and if you're someone who's interested in religion, culture, and democracy, uh, our conference is certainly among the best venues to find an audience who is both sympathetic but also helpful and um, what will, is, will encourage you to improve what you're doing um, and help you get connected to other scholars and other institutions that are interested in that. Um, the last thing I want to talk about with regard to what you all are up to, and I want to go, go over to Jordan here. Um, Jordan has a long and distinguished uh, career in research and writing, um, uh, many of you uh, will uh, know him from the, the uh, projects with Abraham Kuyper and the collective works of Abraham Kuyper. Um, but he's also, uh, I know you're working with the, the Journal for Religion, Culture, and Democracy and a new uh, reading wheel um, uh, online essay thing. Can you tell us just a little bit more about the journal real quick as well as the uh, reading wheel thing you just launched? Yeah, so as Trey mentioned, you know, a lot of the programs we began with um, – have focused on students. We've we've also always viewed academics and scholars as part of our audience. I mean, we want to help cultivate more um, healthy and civilization affirming kinds of scholarship and in, in the academy from from students to professors and staff and administrators and so on. So, um, you know, one of the mandates was to create a an outlet for scholarly expression. Uh, that we've called very imaginatively the Journal of Religion, Culture, and Democracy. <laughs> um, we've now launched that. That's uh, that's going strong. We're into our second year of publication. It's an open access online journal um, that publishes reviews and review essays, as you, you typically see in journals, as well as research articles. Uh, one of the features that we've continue we've started with and will continue to do is to to have workshops where we have some thematic papers that that get worked through and talked through and then go through a review process and then appear. So the first results of those have now appeared at the JRCD. Last year was the 80th anniversary of the uh, publication of C.S. Lewis's classic, The Abolition of Man. So we solicited a number of uh, contributors on the abolition of man and the varieties of ways in which the central message and warning of that prophetic text is relevant today across a variety of disciplines and concerns. So. The fruits of that uh, symposium are now up at the, the Journal of Religion, Culture, and Democracy. Um, you know, we we uh, we want to be entrepreneurial too and continue to find ways to serve various audiences and constituencies. So one of the the latest things we've launched is called is something called the Reading Wheel Review. Um, another mandate I, that we had was to have some kind of an email message <laughs> or newsletter. Right. I think was what we called it, and um, you know. Like like you, like many like many of us, our e email inboxes are full of um, 
messages that come to us from groups that we support or, you know, people who buy our names off a list and we may or may not have ever opted into those lists. <laughs> right, yeah, and mostly stolen, those yeah. things, yeah, mostly those things are telling you how great, you know, the thing, the place is and what kinds of support you should give them, which, you know, is natural and valuable, but we wanted to do something a little different and have a little more substance. So we do have a weekly email uh, communication that we're calling the reading wheel review, but the basic idea is that we're going to spend some time every month focusing on a book. Um, we think the, of, books as uh, centrally important cultural artifacts uh, for all kinds of reasons, both historically as well as um, in terms of practice, in terms of forming our intellects and our moral sensibilities. So um, over the course of each month, we'll, we'll do a variety of features, uh, one a week, focusing on that particular book. So we'll spend a, a, a month uh, per book. And uh, we just launched last month in January. And the opening book that we uh, spent spent January on was Roger Scruton's Conservatism, an Invitation to the Great Tradition. Um, so we had an excerpt from the book to open it up, a, a kind of a traditional review um, of that book, an essay that engages it constructively, and then a podcast interview that Trey did with the uh, Irish philosopher Mark Dooley, who's, uh, among other things, Sir Roger Scruton's biographer and executor of his literary estate. So... This month in February, we're engaging uh, Kevin Vallier's uh, All the Kingdoms of the World, an analytical uh, engagement of the movement known as integralism or neo-integralism. And so we're doing that similar kind of a model on that book. And, um, you know, the editorial calendar's uh, taking shape for the rest of the year. So we're pretty excited about this and um, welcome people to engage with that new initiative. It's a tricky thing to be innovative in, in this uh, kind of world of ideas. So I'm, I'm encouraged to see the reading wheel. It's not something I had, I had seen before. Um, and I think it's, I, I think it's going to be uh, good going forward. I've, I've read the, the first couple, including the one, I think the one for Kevin, was that today? Um, that you sent that out? I, <laughs> these last That's right. Okay, yeah. yeah. Kate, within the last day, uh, the excerpt of, of, of that book, All the Kingdoms of the World, did go out. So Yeah, I, um, I, the last couple of days have run together for me, so I couldn't remember <laughs> if it's this morning or not. Um, well, th this, is, this, this is encouraging, a lot of fun. Um, I, I wanted to kind of jump from talking about the CRCD to maybe just talking about some underlying themes here. And I want to get to the, uh, the, the article you guys wrote about the UDHR in a minute, but I also want to talk about um, maybe a more provocative <laughs> uh, conversation in, the in this you know, a key word here is democracy. Um, and, you know, having, uh, this just is coming off a, a class that I was teaching last night uh, for, with graduate students online. Um, and right now there's a lot of talk about there are threats to democracy. Democracy is in danger. Democracy is, is declining. Um, which for me as a political philosopher, you know, I die a little bit inside, not because I dislike democracy, but because I don't know what anyone's talking about. Um, a lot of times it just seems uh, that democracy is in decline when my side of democracy is not winning, <laughs> to put it cynically. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm wondering, in, in, in thinking about uh, religion's contribution to democracy, uh, which to me and, and you know, just about anybody who would come to the Ciceroian Society would be obvious, um, what democracy is is becoming less obvious, less is, is becoming even more muddled, uh, muddled I think. Um, so I guess when, when you guys think about this, and I don't know who, which one of you wants to go first, uh, whoever unmutes themselves first get, uh, is, is the winner here. Um, what do you think, when you think of democracy and what it means and what it is, what is religion contributing to here? Um, what is culture contributing to here? What, what, do, you, what do you mean? 
Well, I can um, filibuster for a minute while Trey thinks of something. <laughs> well, Trey comes up with a better answer, want, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, the reality is obviously any of these terms, especially a term like democracy, um, is contested. Mm -hmm. And so when, when we use that term, uh, mostly we use it as a shorthand to talk about politics in general mm -hmm. um, and the kind of, kinds of historical regimes um, that are characteristic of um, Western liberal democracies from the 18th century onward. So, um, you know, there are varieties, as you, as you know, the, the um, given your political science background, right. the, the technicalities of what those regimes look like are different. You could have constitutional monarchies and, right. uh, you know, federalist Republican forms of self-government and so on. Um, when I, th when I think of democracy in our, in our name and in terms of our themes, I think of a kind of, that's a shorthand way of talking about the political institutions of self-governance. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. It's not simply, not simply just a process. The majority rule right. or, or yeah, it's not simply procedural and it's not simply something, you know, uh, um, a very narrow understanding of, you know, majority rules um, with no consistency from one day to the next or anything like that. And I think too, um, yeah, Trey, were you going to say something? Uh, I was just going to, I was going to say too that, you know, part of, um, you know, the reality of uh, the audiences that we work with, um, you know, the majority uh, are are Christian, uh, or they come from a Christian background. They may may or may not be necessarily enthusiastically practicing you know, a Christian, you know, in in the Christian tradition. But you know, we specifically chose the name religion um, rather than Christianity uh, because you know whatever it is that that is the uh, you know sort of fundamental meta metaphysical commitments of um, of a people is going to uh, end up having consequences downstream you know um, there's plenty of debate uh, obviously at the moment about you know Christian nationalism that seems to sort of be what you paint your uh, enemies on the right as being uh, without having any kind of a clear definition of it, uh, you know. But before that, you know, there was more. There was sort of more controversy around the concept of a Christian nation, whether it was possible, whether America was a Christian nation, whether whatever was, it, you know, the West or whatever. And I think the kind of the most the most helpful philosopher that's engaged this is the French philosopher Pierre Manon, and he probably reflects you know, kind of the position of what um, our approach to this question would be. And that's to say that, you know, um, those, those immediate religious commitments that are really metaphysical commitments that are informed by Christianity have sort of woven their way into the DNA of the civilization that's ultimately arisen in the West. There's no real way to escape it. And so... Um, whether or not you have a nation full of people that are actively practicing um, some form of Christianity, you still have um, aspects of both the culture and the governmental institutions of that nation that are um, completely, uh, uh, inex they're inextricably intertwined with, with sort of first principles that are derived from Christianity. Like any, any political discourse that you know, for example, that um, engages with the question of rights uh, is is one that Menor um, defines as having a, a Christian mark. And um, so our goal is not necessarily to um, 
proselytize or to make the argument that in order to have democracy or, to, or in order to have stability or for a nation state to actually be able to be stable, you have to have a uh, majority of people that are practicing some form of Christianity. Uh, but the reality is that different types of cultural um, um, different types of cultures emerge from populations that are dominated by, by, by a particular type of religious commitment. Um, and then from those cultures, particular types of governmental structures uh, will emerge. And um, our goal would be to make, uh, you know, um, the various uh, religious groups that are reflected in a pluralistic society um, more aware of those connections uh, to be uh, circumspect with the way that they commit themselves to uh, different um, policy questions or prudential questions that are a part of our, our um, democratic deliberation as people trying to figure out how to live together. Um, and so in the context of a plural society like you'll find in most of the West, I mean, we want um, religious adherents to be better Christians, better Jews, um, better Muslims, um, people that can come into the public square and express uh, the um, sort of the, the fundamental tenets of the religion that they claim, and to be honest about the implications of those things so that we are able to um, have a productive um, political discourse, both with inside of our own traditions, but also across traditions as well. I, I think that's a refreshing, refreshingly different way to think about religion, the relationship between religion, culture, and democracy. Um, I think in, in comparison to what is often discussed today. And what I mean by that is a kind of ideological democratism. I believe uh, Emily Finley, I know she wrote a, a book, I can't remember the name of the book. Um, and other authors have, have remarked on this about how there's is a lot of this talk about democracy considers democracy to be an end in itself. Um, as if simply, okay, now we got democracy, majority rule, usually what they mean, or at least the, the majority that I side with, whatever that happens to be, um, is, is, is democracy winning and democracy in, as an end in itself. Um, and I think this is a much more substantive, nuanced way to think about democracy. It also made me think about a couple books that I would recommend to our listeners uh, on this question, some, some older ones, uh, especially... Um, Irving Babbitt's old book about, I think it's actually, I think we're at the, actually at the hundred year, I think it's been a hundred years since this was published, hundred years ago, Democracy and Leadership by Irving Babbitt. That, I think that came out in 1924. Yeah. Um, as well as uh, The Moral Foundations of Democracy by John Hollowell, an amazing book, which I, I cannot recommend highly enough. And then a lesser known book by, in full disclosure, my dissertation advisor, Klaus Rinn, uh, Democracy and the Ethical Life, which I also think is is excellent in the sense that Democracy is not something we necessarily need to run from, but it is neither an end in itself nor is it necessarily self-sustaining. Um, and so it can, it, it needs to have this underlying cultural, moral, ethical vision uh, behind it. Now, of course, one of the um, key and uh, uh, elements of this is the whole, all the the, the dynamics of rights um, and the, the the importance of rights to democracy and to that conversation. Um, and you guys released a, an essay last, oh no, well, no, it's February. So back in December, um, we had the 75 year anniversary of the Universal Declaration of, of Human Rights, um, which 
uh, was, I believe the word would be ratified or at least approved or uh, promulgated, whatever the word is, on December 10th, 1948. Massive document and one of the uh, massively important document and one of the most important examples of how in a more or less post-Christian world, um, post-Christian West, residual Christianity um, still had an, an, a significant impact on these liberal democratic ideas of rights, um, especially through the, the the persons of Jacques Maritain and I believe you said, uh, is it Charles um, Malik? Is that how you say it? Malik. Malik, okay. Um, yep. uh, really, really interesting stuff here. I'm just wondering if we could, uh, you know, and I'll start with you, Jordan. You know, how do you, did you see... Uh, is it, the, the main argument is, as I read it, the UDHR is a great example of how, look, Christianity is not an obstacle to our rights, not an obstacle to our freedom, our liberty. It's actually helping everyone. And this is a great example. Is that, is that your approach there? Yeah, so we saw this anniversary as an opportunity to kind of reexamine this foundationally important document for so much of rights discourse over the 20th century. And you know, bring in some other perspectives too. So we helped um, organize a symposium at Law and Liberty. So there is an essay by Trey and I uh, on the Christian contributions to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And then there are another uh, three essays that focus on different aspects of rights discourse in light of the UDHR and, and other phenomena in the intervening three quarters of a century. Um, you know, one way of thinking about these kinds of documents is, is as cultural artifacts and how they relate to a particular historical and cultural moment. Um, you know, Josh, when you were just talking about the relationship between democracy and and religion, that part of that conversation, I, I immediately, you know, went back to John Adams' quote about the American Constitution, where he said that it was made only for a moral and a religious people, and right, whole, it's yeah. wholly inadequate to, for the government of any other. And you can think about um, you know, the positive law in that sense, as it relates to the moral order, the natural law, and cultural institutions um, at a particular time and place. And so you really have to have both. And in many ways, that connects uh, or is a perfect picture of the relationship between First Liberty Institute and the litigation work that First Liberty does and the cultural advocacy that we do at the CRCD as part of that larger work. Um, we're trying to address, in that sense, the positive law and the moral order that is um, both the grounding and a requirement and an outflow of the of the of the law of the land in that sense um, and so in the same way a kind of a constitutional document with a small c something like the universal declaration of human rights is grounded in a particular time and place and yet even by its name you can see that it's it's an attempt to articulate something universal something that applies everywhere and always and to everyone um, so the the goal in our essay was really to highlight um, generally the kind of Christian contribution. I mean, there's there's a lot of arguments you can make uh, about rights discourse, some of which Trey has already invoked in discussing um, Menah and the relation between Christianity and rights talk. But, you know, in particular, these two figures, uh, Jacques Maritain, the Roman Catholic philosopher and political theorist, um, and uh, Charles Malik, who... Um, was an Orthodox Christian and um, substantively engaged in the text of the document. So in many ways, you could think of Maritain as a kind of, uh, Paul Marshall calls him, I think, the 
uh, a godfather of the process that results in the Universal Declaration right. of Human Rights, yep. and then Malik is much more um, concretely involved in the actual construction of the of the document. Mm-hmm. And Malik is someone I had never until I read your article. I actually never heard of him. Um, yeah, you know, I, I certainly heard of uh, Maritam, but um, tell us a little bit about so it's uh, Charles Habib Malik uh, served as Lebanese ambassador to the United to the U.S. beginning in 1945. Um, and was a report, I don't know how to say this word, repertoire, <laughs> uh, to the UN Human Rights Commission, 1947. Um, and he, like you said, he, he's from an Arab Christian family and he's, he's, um, specifically helping draft the actual text itself of the, of the Declaration of Human Rights. Um, and so I, I guess, uh, what, what do we know more about him and his, and not only in that background, but, um, how he viewed rights in, in relation to his own faith? Um, did he see himself as, uh, a, I mean, not in a kind of theocratic sense, like I'm imposing Christianity on the rest of the world, but did, did, did he, was he very self-consciously understanding this as an extension of his Christianity, I guess you could say, as, as Maritain arguably did, especially with his rooting, being rooted in uh, natural law and, and the Thomistic tradition? Well, given the fact that he was, he was Lebanese, um, and uh, raised in a Christian family, but in a context where um, they were they were not in a his, his family was not in a, a nation that was dominated um, by by Christians. Uh, he he understood the Muslim mind and uh, the in the Islamic faith um, uh, in a way that was it was uh, both uh, intellectual and experiential. And he had taught philosophy at um, the American University uh, in, uh, in Lebanon. And uh, the reason that he was so e- effective uh, in the role that he played is that the process of hammering out the actual provisions of the UD- UDHR um, was, was pretty messy when it came to um, especially the questions of religious freedom and um, the objections that were made by um, uh, by uh, Muslim majority countries. Now, it, the UDHR has been accepted and ratified by the UN, so it's not exactly like a international document where you've got signatories. So there's not technically any nations that have failed to sign it, quote unquote, because no one's actually signed it. But there were um, several nations that abstained. Um, and there were some, you know, uh, the Soviet Union was one, um, even though that, you know, had, you know, the state sponsored atheism was, was only 30 years old at that point, and, and it was, you know, um, an, an Orthodox nation before that, and most, and many people, you know, had sort of been formed in, in an Orthodox context. Um, so that was really for more ideological reasons and not necessarily purely sort of like religious differences between, um, Christianity and the dominant faith of, of, a, of a community. But Afghanistan played a, a large role in sort of pushing back at um, the UDHR's sort of Christian um, flavor. And um, Malik uh, took great pains to, to take those objections seriously and try to massage the way uh, that, that each of these were, were, were carefully constructed. Now, at the end of the day, uh, you know, the UDHR is not 
um, universal uh, in the sense that it is universally respected or universally um, you know, influential on a nation's um, um, con you know, national constitution or statutory law or practice. Um, it, there's a sense in which it has like an internal coherence. It has a, a like a horizontal coherence. Um, but when you're looking at nations like, especially Saudi Arabia, Iran, those have been those have been nations that have been very vocal in the last 75 years about reservations about the UDHR. Um, places like North Korea just simply ignore it, or um, you know make claims that of, of course we we recognize you know everything that's in this and. It, it's actualized here in this this paradise, um, but they it, the implementation of sort of the ideals that are stated in the UDHR um, are sort of ad hoc, so it, it lacks like a you know a um, horizontal coherence, um, which is really what would be required for it to truly be universal. But Ma but Malik, yeah, absolutely was uh, well respected uh, within every community uh, that was that was. Um, Represented, and we're really talking about majority Christian, majority Muslim, and then uh, you know Israel was 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 on the international scene at that at that time. Um, but and he did see this actually as a as a one of his high his highest achievement um, in furtherance of uh, his own um, faith informed calling to um, secure. Um, rights uh, for for all people in the world you know one of the things um, that I'm I'm interested in just listening to this about this the, the discourse the underlying discourse here about natural rights but also natural law um, it, it's on my mind because just last night I was you know I was teaching a grad class with um, students uh, Christian students from a major Christian university and they all believe in natural law but um, you know, could this could the, this be persuasive today? In a sense, like, is could you even get this far with the UDHR today? Um, in in the sense that while natural law may exist, we're all made in the image of God, whether we acknowledge it or not. Um, that there's there's this lack of a belief in any natural law or objective truth. Um, in in the sense, and I, I think that's an interesting challenge that that the UDHR and the spirit that animates it. Um, Faces in 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 our in our modern world, and you show this at the toward the end of the article um, about how recently um, the UN Human Rights Council was founded in 2006. They had their meeting uh, recently in November, um, and ironically, uh, Al, I don't know how to say his name, Ali Bahraini, uh, the UN ambassador from the Islamic Republic of Iran, served as chairperson of that meeting, um, which it, a country that clearly. Um, uh, uh, violates Article 18 of the UDHR in, se in the sense of religious liberty. Um, I, I guess both of this terms of, of natural law and kind of the, the survival of these rights in what Aaron Wren is calling in the negative world. Um, you know, we don't have to get into that uh, can of worms. But I'm just wondering, you know, wh where, where do you stand here? Where, where it's like, is this, is this really an antique now? Uh, is the UDHR dead on arrival in a world that no longer believes in natural law? Yeah. So one, I mean, let me let me back up a little bit and, and start sure. to answer that question or at least address it, uh, even if obliquely. <laughs> um, you know, Josh, you're not alone. Uh, I had not never heard of Charles Malik either until about ten years ago. 
uh, a colleague of mine at the Acton Institute, Dylan Palman, introduced me to his work, and um, he he edited uh, a reprint of one of Malick's works, Christ in Crisis, at that time. So I commend that to your listeners if they're looking to to engage Malick's thought um, directly. And I talked to him a little bit about Malick and and um, his role in the construction of the UDHR, and he he told me this anecdote where, so so the three main original drafters of the UDHR were, were Malik, um, Eleanor Roosevelt, and um, a Chinese philosopher named P.C. Chang. Um, and at one point, you know, Dylan described this dynamic between the three of them talking about uh, the, the relationship of the individual to the collective or the community. And, um, you know, Chang had made a, a, a Eleanor Roosevelt thought at the moment, in the moment, was a pretty compelling case that yes, the you know there's a sense in which the needs of the individual, the rights of the individual need to need to be um, subsumed or um, put into proper relationship under the the common good you might call it or the needs of the community and um, you know this is a really concrete place where Malik's convictions about Christian, a Christian understanding of the dignity of the individual person created in God's image shines through. He insisted, no, no, no. We have to have the proper relationship between the individual and the community, and there's an irreducible um, dignity that adheres in, inheres in the person as an individual person that cannot be subsumed or um, eliminated or instrumentalized in in, in um, pursuit of some greater greater good or some common goal. Um, and uh, Malik actually was convincing in this in this moment for that to be the foundational kind of understanding of this dynamic between the one and the many or the the individual and the and the community. So there's a there's a concrete instance where, you know, something that is informed by Christian convictions, again not saying you couldn't get to something like the dignity dignity of the individual by other means or by other arguments, but his convictions about the reality of the situation with respect to the human person um, had a concrete and substantive influence on this, the, the kind of um, posture of the document itself towards the individual and, and, and rights. Um, you know, a shorthand version of answering your question, too, is just to say a number of the other uh, contributions to the symposium that we helped uh, put together at Law and Liberty do explicitly engage this question of natural law and, uh, and its relationship to the UDHR and the efficacy of the UDHR. Um, I think it is one of the things we've learned in the in the past 75 years. If it wasn't clear already, um, at the time of the UDHR, uh, you know, Lewis had already written the abolition of man. Um, is that there is no other way? There's no other option. You know, it's it's something like the Tao, as as Lewis talked about it, the moral order, the natural law, yeah. um, and even things that try to depart from it end up affirming it, um, accident. You know, <laughs> right, right, unintentionally, right. So. Um, even if you claim to be a moral relativist, you don't like it when bad things happen to you and you try to blame people for doing something you think is wrong, even if you become hypocritical in that sense and don't have a, you know, a coherent ground to make that kind of a claim on, you still, um, by nature, do those, make those kinds of judgments. So I think it is true that the reality of natural law, well, first of all, obviously exists, and to the extent that it's going to be efficacious, it's going to have to be acknowledged. Um, and maybe there's a sense in which you have to, you things have to get worse before they get better. You know, I mean, if we really are trying to live out um, socially and even individually in our lives, this completely radically free and untethered 
existential um, experiment in, in self-creation <laughs> um, and self-recreation, uh, we're going to see where that leads, right? And as an ancient maxim goes, you chase nature out and she comes back with a pitchfork. So um, maybe we're set Maybe we're set for a real resurgence in terms of, of the efficacy of natural law because people are going to realize you know, what the other options lead to. Certainly pray you're right. Um, and I want to encourage our readers uh, here as we, uh, I want to give, give you all a chance just for a last word here in just a moment, but um, yeah, definitely go to over to lawandliberty.org uh, to check out more uh, pieces in that symposium, Law and Liberty, uh, another uh, partner of the Ciceroian Society. We always have uh, several of their authors and, and folks over there with Liberty Fund and everybody, um, great people. Um, so take, take a look at them. And take a look at the CRCD and uh, what they're doing. And, and if you've enjoyed this conversation, you like these kind of conversations, which can be difficult. I mean, natural law is a, is a heady subject, um, but also, as, as Jordan's point out, incredibly important. Uh, we need a resurgence of it and, and a recovery of what it means and as a, a kind of common ground that we can uh, speak with, especially in a world of kind of inescapable pluralism um, that uh, is, is just part of our, our life and our reality. Um, but I want to give you all a last word. If someone wants to learn more about the CRCD, where do they go? What do they do? And, um, you know, what you got, you got some deadlines coming up, I know, for some of these fellowships, right? Uh, we do. We do. Um, we've got um, our Savannah seminars in April, and that's, um, you know, we've, we've still got a couple of spots left for that. We've actually added something new this year. And okay. Josh, you and you and mm -hmm. Melissa could join us in Savannah, um, where we've got friends of First Liberty uh, that are going to be going along and kind of having a, um, um, you know, it's a, it's an educational tour that's geared towards people who are um, not necessarily in. Uh, they're, they're, these would be sort of like educated lay people, I guess you could say. And Edu educated um, so what people? Educated lay people. Lay so people. maybe okay. maybe you would be bored by it since you're, you're not a lay <laughs> I heard I heard educated but, lovey people and I didn't know what that meant. Oh, I was really oh, confused. Oh. Um. Yeah, so so we <laughs> we started we've started doing, you know, um, doing this because we just had a lot of interest um, from people that were just like, Oh, I would really like to go to something like the Savannah seminar. Yeah. So we so we we carved out, you know, an opportunity for um, to, to be able to take uh, to others along. Um, they don't they don't quite overlap exactly with the students, but there's some overlap, but we, we structure it a little bit differently. Um, so on our website, crcd.net, there's information about all of our programs, the Savannah Seminar, there's a way to, to register if, you, if you'd like to go on the educational tour. There's also a way to register for an educational tour that we do in Boston uh, right around July 4th. Um, and then there's a way to... Um, to uh, subscribe to the Reading Wheel Review. Uh, and then we never even mentioned the index that we do, the Religious Liberty of the States oh, yeah. Index. That should be the, probably a separate podcast. The, the ranks, uh, ranks all 50 states in terms of the statutory and constitutional protections for religious exercise that you would find in state law there. Yeah, and there's, there's a great presentation on that, by the way. Uh, if, you, if you go to the Cicerone Society's website, our Belmont Abbey Conference, uh, there's several videos from that conference, and you can see a presentation on um, the religious liberty in the states, which is an amazing uh, collection of data and and just a great groundbreaking project that I uh, encourage everyone to take a look at. It has a huge it's, it's had a huge impact on the way I've thought about 
um, life in the States uh, and, and their role in protecting religious liberty as well. And Jordan, you were saying something? Yeah, uh, real quick, in addition to going to the website, you know, Josh, a great place to learn more about the CRCD is going to be at the uh, Ciceronian Society meeting. Yeah. Um, we're we're going to have the event in Plano. Um, there are going to be a couple of the, of the Shaftesbury Fellows who present papers, including the awarding of the inaugural Piccadilly Prize, which goes to the most outstanding research project from among that, that group of scholars over the summer. So um, please do plan to you know, visit us at the at the at the Ciceronian Society meeting as well. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, it's coming up real fast. Uh, as of today, February second, we we have about ten spots left for people to come. We we do have to cap it. Um, but if you're, I don't know when this is coming out just yet. Hopefully, it comes out. It's supposed to come out before the conference. Um, so if you, if you still have time, take a look and register. Well, Jordan and Trey, thank you so much for joining us. If you all loved this conversation and want to have more of it, please come to the conference February 29th through March 2nd at uh, 2024 at the Hope Center in Plano, Texas. Um, and be sure to rate and review this podcast, The Sower, and share it with your friends. Check out our website at ciceronianssociety.org. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all forevermore. Thank you for listening.